You're listening to a message from the church at Rutledge. For more information about TCAR, please visit thechurchatrutledge.org. Don't tell Brady, I didn't hardly notice he wasn't here. <laughs> yeah. Now, I can't say that. He's probably at home listening. He's like, yeah, thanks, guys. Um, but. No, Brady's been the, a backbone of our praise team since we started. Some of you know the story of um, when we first got started. The band practiced for like six months in his basement before we ever had our first service. So um, Brady's house is actually the original T-Car campus. It's like small group was there, band practice there, uh, baptisms happened in the swimming pool. So there's like, it's a very special place for us and appreciate Brady a lot and he, he really is kind of one of those anchor guys that just, you feel safe when he's up there. <laughs> you know, it's like everything's going to be fine. You know, so but our whole group, the whole group just does such a great job. That's, I was trying to compliment and say, even though the anchor wasn't there, man, you guys did a great job. So thank you for what you do every week. Um, but glad you're here today. Thanks for choosing to be with us here at T-Car and, you know, it's free country and there's all kinds of things you could be doing this morning. You're here, and we're glad you're here. I want you to make yourself at home, grab some coffee. Even while I'm preaching, it doesn't bother me. It may bother some other folks, but if it keeps you awake during the sermon, I'm, I'm good with it, okay? But it's really good coffee. We, we just want this to be a welcoming and warm place for you to come and take your next step with God, whatever that may be. And hopefully you'll see, as we look into the truth of Scripture, how it applies to you today and what you can do with that during the week, and so that's that's our hope, and put something into practice this week. We we say it's a safe place to hear a dangerous message. If you've ever heard us say that, so we we present the truth from God's word, and we let the Holy Spirit do the pressuring. We don't do that's not my job to pressure. I just my job to present you with the truth, and then help you and encourage you any way I can in living out that truth and and digesting that. So if there's any way we can help you. Uh, just let us know. But safe place, but dangerous message, because if you do grab hold of that, then whatever the truth is we present, it, it'll change your life. The gospel changes your life. As we were singing that song, I just went, that's the whole summary of today's message. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Like That literally is the summary of what I hope you get today, is that each and every day, if you're a Christian, you wake up and you go, just praise the one who paid my debt, raised this life up from the dead. He died for me, so I'm going to live for him today. I mean, that's that's just, just having that mindset every day of, you could say it in many different ways, it's not about me, you know, today's about Jesus, and I'm just so thankful, and I'm so thankful that I'm going to live for him today. Um, given what he did for me. So it's a dangerous message because that changes your path during the day from doing what you want to do to going, okay, Jesus is on the throne of my life, okay, which is a lot of what we're going to talk about today. So we're in the book of Mark, chapter 15, starting chapter 15 today, two more chapters. But, (laughs) however, this part of the Gospels has the most text to it. Of all the four Gospels, 
there's there's more written about this than anything else happened in Jesus's life. So um, that doesn't mean I'm going to necessarily spend more time on it because I know uh, if you've been in church, most people have, and I look around this room and I go, you've heard, there, you've probably heard this story and read this part of the Gospels, the crucifixion, more than any other part and are most familiar with it. And so I'm not going to necessarily break down the events and I'll give you some references to some things that may help you, but I'm really going to give some peripheral stuff that may be, may be new to help give you context and understand that. So some of the things I'm going to talk about um, have some, I want to be careful because you guys would be like, oh, I'm going to read the scripture, okay? We're going to look at the, what the Bible says, but I'm going to give you some references to some outside sources that just validate and, and show you this is re- like, it's not just us who believe in the Bible. There's historians and people outside of in secular history that go, yes, this happened. Yes, these are the events. And, and here's some more information to what happened um, that help you get a better grasp on just exactly how it went and how the Bible is so reliable. So I'm going to give you some info, info from the, I guess I would say from the Jewish perspective, okay? because there's some of their writings that are historically are good. They're not canonized scripture. But it's just historical stuff that's good. But you you, you get a it, it's really important writings because this is like stuff back to this time and bef- way before. Like so, there's like history in there. Okay, so there's things like and there you have to understand how they would reference things. So you had like the Torah, right, or Torah if you want to pronounce it properly, I guess. But I'm from Granger County, so I say Torah. So they had the Torah, which was the first five books. The Bible, the law of Moses given to Moses by God. And so you have those. Then there was the Tanakh, which is the entire Old Testament they would refer to. Then there was the oral law. And of course, the oral law is just what it says. It was the it was passed down from rabbi to rabbi, from from generation to generation. The, these are um things that were commentaries on the scriptures, on the Tanakh, on the Torah, commentaries, uh, explanations, rules about ceremonies, rules about living theology stuff. There's all kinds of stuff in there um, that they had this oral law, which was told and retold through generations, decisions, interpretations, comments, that kind of thing. And it was all from well-known, respected rabbis of that time and throughout history. So eventually the oral law was written down, okay, and referred to and called the Mishnah, okay? There were 63 volumes. So it's like, remember, you used to have the Encyclopedia Britannica in your home, all those volumes of it. It's like that, 63 volumes, really sizable volumes of this Mishnah or oral law that was written down. It was, and inside the Mishnah was the Talmudic um, tractates, it was called. There were 30, about 36 of those, which are, were specific uh, volumes which dealt with the scriptures in particular, not just ceremonies and rules and stuff they had put together about things commentaries about other things that had happened. But the, the, the Talmud 
is what they would refer to, refers to those things that were in the scriptures. It was 38, almost 38, not 36. Um, the other stuff, like I said, was ceremonies, rules, life, theology, and such. So you have to understand, um, at the time of the writings of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it, it's which Mark was the last to be written of the four, um, was a time when it was very rough to be a Christian. I mean, you got to remember, this is Rome has taken over. They've taken over the known world. Um, and so it's very difficult. You're under Roman occupation. It was hard enough for the Jews, much less these people who say now we're, you know, Jesus is our king and we're following him. He's king of the Jews and we're following this Messiah and they put him to death. There, there was a, at that time, what, what ha- started happening after Jesus, there was, there were 10 major campaigns that Rome went through um, to try to eradicate Christianity altogether. I mean, everything from scriptures to people, their meetings. I mean, they tried to do away with it completely. Went through 10 seasons of that, of of actual literal like programs, campaigns they put together. We're going to go out and eradicate Christianity. And they ruled the, the known world. Okay? So, it, people were persecuted, beaten, crucified, um, the attempts to destroy literature, all that stuff, trying to wipe it from the known world. Keep in mind that what we're reading today to have this for them and be able to read about the crucifixion and what Jesus went through, you can imagine was very encouraging to them, given what they were facing themselves. Uh, under Roman occupation, knowing their Savior, their Lord, they were following, was wrongly tried, beaten, crucified, persecuted to the fullest extent. The one they were following stood in the face of all this. So they too were given strength knowing that, being able to read this section of Scripture in, in the Gospel of Mark and the others. Now, like I said last week, they went through six trials. Jesus went through six trials and before the crucifixion. Three religious under the Jews and three secular under the Romans. Annas the high, it, well, he was the ex-high priest, but he kind of, he was the patriarch, still had the clout. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, was now the high priest. And, um, but Annas really still had the authority and the power over the nation of Israel, and and so Annas was the first trial. Went that you know he went, got him, wanted him first. Early the next morning, um, or excuse me, his son-in-law Caiaphas, Caiaphas was the acting high priest, and he gets him second. And they put him through a trial with him, and then early the next morning with the Sanhedrin before taking him to Pontius Pilate, which is. Um, this is important, which all, ha- he doesn't get the pilot until after sunup, okay? Six in the morning. So all these other three took place at night. We'll talk about that, okay? Um, so the Sanhedrin get him early in the morning, and that's the ruling elders over, over all of the Jewish nation. And so they get him, which is 
the first time they actually move into one of the legitimate categories of being before the Sanhedrin, not before those other guys. But there's still things wrong with everything they did, okay? But so that's when they hand him off, when the, when the Sanhedrin write up their deal to get their paperwork all in order and just to make it seem legit, when they get that all done, they take him down to, to Pilate, and that's where we pick up in chapter 15 of the book of Mark. Let's, let me pray again, and then we'll read through some of this in just a moment. I'll, I've got some more stuff to tell you, but we'll get the scripture in just a second. Father, thank you for your son Jesus. Help us just understand your word this morning. Open our hearts and minds to who you are and what you have to say to us. And thank you for Jesus and his death on the cross for us. And so may we just honor that today and worship you and, and just be true to your word. Would your Holy Spirit just do what only you can do that I can't uh, go beyond my voice. And so I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. But um, the reason, before we read this part of Scripture, the reason they're before Pilate even is because under Roman occupation, the Jews could not carry out capital punishment. We talked about that last week. They, the court could sentence someone to death, but was not allowed to carry it out under Roman law. Only Rome could execute somebody, and Romans were exempt from crucifixion because it was so horrible. So they had to, to get a death sentence from a Roman court in order to finish this thing out. And Pilate is the acting governor of Jerusalem at this time. Pilate sends it over to Herod Antipas. He's like, I don't want to fool with this. Sends it back to Pilate, right? And so now, before we read this, understand what's happened before. Sorry, i got to go back here. In the Mishnah that, we, that I mentioned, the oral law, and it's written down, the, the oral law gave 18 rules for their court system in capital crime cases. Okay, so like rule number one, this is Jewish law. I mean, this is their law. And here's the high priests who are the ones that's supposed to handle this and have written this stuff. And it, rule number one was no trials are to take place during the night hours. All three of their cases took place at night before Annas, Caiaphas, and Sanhedrin. Because they get the pilot, it tells us what, what hour they get there. Okay? The first three trials were all at night. All happened before 6 a.m. Start at dark the night before and end before 6 a.m. Okay? Which is when they show up at Pilate's house. But it, we know Jesus is on the cross by 9, around 9 o'clock. Okay, then he's there for a few hours. Number two, trials weren't to be done on the eve of the Sabbath or during festivals. What's going on right now? Passover. They're not supposed to be doing this, right? It's supposed to be during, it couldn't be. This took place during the Passover. Number three, all trials were to be public in the judgment hall. There was a, uh, all secret trials were forbidden. Forbidden, okay? And the trials were done in the home, privately, in a home before Annas and then Caiaphas and Sanhedrin, all in the house of Caiaphas, okay? Should have taken place in what's called the Chamber of Hewn Stone, is what it was called, before the 71 ruling elders of, called the Sanhedrin. And it took place at Caiaphas' house. Number six, those on trial, I'm skipping down because these are the ones they broke that just up front. Number six, those on trial could not testify against themselves. Witnesses were required. And the only thing Jesus is ever convicted of is what? His own words. Are you the Son of God? I am. 
says they brought witnesses before the these courts, but but Scripture says they all proved to be false witnesses. They couldn't find a witness that could convict him, so they asked him and convict him by his own words, which is something their court said you can't do. Okay? Number 12, priests could not participate in the questioning. That's their rule. And they got Annas, Caiaphas, all have their own trials before getting to the Sanhedrin. Weren't supposed to do that. Both the first two trials, the questioning was about high priests. Number 18, the sentencing in the trial could not occur until the following day after trial. Jesus was tried, convicted, and sentenced all that night. Okay? I mean, you see all the, they broke all their own rules trying to push this through. They amazingly did this in secret. And, and think about this. What do we read about in the Old Testament about these guys? They were sticklers for the law. I mean, they were serious about the law. They had rules for the laws, right? They had rules upon rules upon rules to keep you from the law that was actually in the Scripture, right? And you better not break any of them. I mean, these guys were serious about the law. But, you know the old saying, if you can't find a good lawyer that knows the law, find somebody that knows the judge, right? So that's what they've done. So Mark 15, verse 1 says this, Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him. He needed, there's an, if you go to the other Gospels, um, John 18, I think it is, um, there's actually three things they accuse him of. Subverting the nation, saying you don't have to pay your taxes, and claiming to be a king. Okay? But this is the only one we find in Mark, and it's really the only one. It's the only one they do anything with. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, It is as you say. The chief priest began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Okay? This is what, what normally happens when somebody accuses you of something. You defend yourself, right? He's like, why is this guy not saying anything, right? So at this time, when they bring, they come to, to, to Jesus, they take Jesus to Pilate, Pilate is staying um, in the fortress of Antonia. That's what it's called. It's on the, the temple platform. Remember, we talked a few weeks about the temple, um, how big it was. And in the northwest corner, there's a fortress. And so it's attached to the northwest corner of the temple court. And Roman soldiers were kept there to, like, squash any riots or, you know, what, whatever during the festivals and such should occur as, like, a security force there at the temple. Okay? So they take Jesus there, and that's where... Uh, Pilate is staying. Long, there was another governor from somewhere that during the Passover would come in and stay there and then go home. can't remember who that was right now. So they take Jesus there and knock on the door and demand to see the governor early in the morning. And the governor asks, what are the charges? And what is, you know, and that's what we're reading. Luke 23.2 tells you, like I said, um, not just John, but Luke 23, 2 is where 
you get the, all the accusations they made. You, I'll let you read that. But the third charge is the important one. You're claiming to be a king. Of course, in Pilate's world, that's serious, right? There's Caesar is godlike. I mean, he's the ruler. He's you can't. I mean, to claim to be a king is goes against their religion, right? Goes against Roman religion. You can't do that. Okay, who's Lord? Caesar, right? They, you'd have to profess him as Lord. Okay. So what kind of king was Jesus really? Because he makes a comment in John. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. That's how he explains it in John. So Jesus is saying he is not a political king like they understood but he's a, he's king spiritually, okay? At this time, okay. That, see that for us, there's a, there is a throne in the hearts of men and women, right? And when you become a true born again Christian, basically what you're doing is taking yourself off the throne of your life, and Jesus comes in and takes over and sits on that throne and becomes your king. He's now on the throne of your life. Now it's not my will be done, but it's Jesus, your will be done in my life. And as Christians, even now for us, if you're a born-again believer, you're a kingdom dweller. Okay, That's where his kingdom is right now, is in the hearts of believers. So it's true spiritually, but it's also true you might say eventually or in the future coming. It's it's true in the future coming. His kingdom is not of this world now, but in Revelation 11, verse 15, it says, talking about the seventh trumpet, Christ reigned foreseen. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Okay? One day Jesus will be political, actual, physical, literal, worldwide, universe-wide, however you want to explain that, king, okay? He will take over. I believe that all begins after tribulation period. You know, that's premillennial viewpoint of what I see at the end of this age. But in the end, no matter what you believe in your uh, eschatology, it, when all things are said and done, he's king over all. Okay, so Jesus could have said, my, not, my kingdom is not of this world yet, but it will be one day. So, so let me ask you a question, okay? In your Bible, before chapter 15, it probably says in there, there's a, probably a heading before chapter 15 that says, Jesus before Pilate, Right? If you look at that, mine did. I, I, you know, I read NASB. Um, it, it probably has that heading, which is not what originally in Scripture. You know, numbers, chapters, all those headings were added later by, by people. They weren't in the original manuscripts. But that just gives us references and so forth to be able to tell you where, where you're at. Um, but it says Jesus before Pilate. But here's the question. Who's the real judge in all this? 
It's Jesus before Pilate. That's what it says, right? It, I mean, it should be understood in all these trials, right? Who was really on trial? It, it should be understood that really all of mankind was on trial. Pilate was before Jesus. Jesus was not before Pilate. Okay? Jesus was innocent. They were not. But the judge becomes the one who pays our penalty of the sentence, which is death for us. Jesus does that for us. He is the judge. He passes sentence, but then, of course, then pays our penalty for us. But what Pilate says and does in these moments determines his destiny, not Jesus's, really. God's going He's got his plan. He's going to do what he's going to do. And really, it's what we choose. To, same for us. What we choose to do with that and who Jesus is determines our destiny, not his. Right? Now, a little interesting info. Pilate was the fifth governor of Judea, okay? And he was appointed by Caesar Tiberius in 26 AD, ruled for 10 years. He was, he was not even Roman. He was because, obviously, as they conquered the known world, wherever you lived, you were then Roman, right? If, especially if you were born then and under their rule and all that stuff, you, you were born Roman. They ruled it, okay? Um, but he was he was Roman by occupation. He was not Roman by birth. He, his country he was his country was Spain, not Italy, okay? He he was from Seville, Spain. And so his country was taken over when he was a child. As a, at a young age, he enters the Roman Legion, becomes a soldier, wasn't even a good one, okay? according to, to history. Um, worked his way up through the ranks, however. Um, now, how does he become governor? Okay. Well, he, you've heard the expression, marrying the boss's daughter. Okay. Well, he married the boss's granddaughter. Okay. He, he married the granddaughter of Caesar Augustus. And so, maybe wedding gift, I don't know. Okay. He's like, where we go? Married my granddaughter. I kind of got to give him a good job, right? Something safe. And so he, he's like, okay, you can be governor over Judea, okay? Which wasn't even a big deal. It's like Rome didn't even really care. It's like, that's Judea. Nobody, it's Jerusalem. Nobody, we don't really care that much, right? Not a great job. It's just Judea. Uh, didn't care about that little area in their kingdom as much as other places. It was kind of like, well, Hey, you can be governor of Kyle's Ford, right? The, most of you are like, where's that? Exactly, right? Or Mooresburg, right? You could even say Bean Station, Rutledge, right? In the grand scheme of the United States, right? You, you can be governor of Blaine, okay? It's like, it was like, it's like they didn't care about it. It was like, okay, you got to give him a job. We'll, we'll throw him over here in Judea, right? But, and so he gets the job by marriage, not a great job, okay? 
And so Pilate was actually, we'll get to this more next week, Pilate was walking on thin ice in where he was at anyway, and it's what kind of got him in the predicament he's in, okay? But he wasn't a great governor. His wife was supposedly a Jewish convert, okay? Here's, they've got to Jerusalem. Here she's converted to Judaism and was very interested in the Messiah of Judaism and very inter- interested in this man they called Jesus, who claimed to be the Messiah, or people said was, and she even had a dream the night before and told Pilate what? Anybody remember? Have nothing to do with this man. Have nothing to do with this righteous man, she said. So, verse 6. Now, at the feast, he used, at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. Can't, I mean, that's pretty serious. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to doing for them. Pilate asked them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him who you call king of the Jews? See, he's not wanting to do this. He's trying everything he can to get out of it, right? And they shouted back, crucify him. But Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Important phrase right here. Okay, and This is where you can do some research and figure out what it, what's going on. In particular, we'll talk about next week, Pilate's relationship to Caesar at this point. You read some of the other parallel accounts, you'll, you'll fill it. I want you to look into that, but Wishing to satisfy the crowd. We get caught in that too, don't we? Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Now, there's this guy named Origen in history. It's O-R-I-G-E-N. That's his name, okay? Who was one of the early church fathers in the second century. He was from North Africa, um, Egypt, and he was a theologian. He taught hermeneutics and preaching kind of stuff, but he was a great historian as well. And according to Origen, Barabbas' full name was, anybody know? Anybody know what his first name was? Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Okay? It's Jesus Barabbas. Okay? The Barabbas part just means son of a father. If you, if you read it in its original language, Barabbas, Abba, Abba, Father. Bar, it just means son of a father, okay? So this is, and he, Origen brings this out in his writings, which was just phenomenal. Jesus was a common name in Hebrew, okay? But interesting choice that they had. They had Jesus Barabbas, Jesus son of a father, or Jesus Christ, son of the father. Here's your choice, right? And they choose Barabbas, son of a father. And Origen says this. This is his stuff, okay? People still make the same choice today. People still to this day would rather choose the kingdom of of men and man's rule rather than God the Father's kingdom 
and the rule of Christ. Interesting choice. Verse 16. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, is what that would be called, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. Okay? It's interesting, that praetorium, that place they go to, is still there today. The very stones are there today. They're saying that's where Jesus would have been beat and um, where some things would have happened to Jesus. Perhaps there's history things that say there would have been a particular game later on that's played where they blindfold you and these soldiers would all play this game where they would... Um, it's one thing to know a punch is coming. It's another to be blindfolded and all these guys would just come by and just punch you in the face or hit you in the stomach, whatever. So they would have played this game and basically all of the soldiers that were in there would hit him except one. And then they'd take the blindfold off and say, which one of us didn't hit you? And until you guess the right one, they keep playing the game. All right? It's just one of many things Christ endured for us. And they called together, but it's interesting. Some I, That's one of my dreams, is for you for a Christian probably too, is not because of a pilgrimage or anything like that. I would just love to go see the places and say, these stones that are still here are the stones that were here when Jesus walked the earth. And, and he stood in, in this room somewhere here, and this is where it happened. You know, I just think it would be so amazing. Go to the Garden of Gethsemane, sit down under a tree and pray. I just think it would be just amazing, okay? Anybody wants to bless me with that trip, you're welcome to do so, okay? You can go with me if you pay for it, okay? So, this, so it says, and they called together the whole, whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple. You ever seen a little purple thing draped over the cross at, Particularly Methodist churches do that, okay? And after twisting a crown of thorns, they put on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. Not true worship, right? After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off of him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. See, even that purple... Thing and taking that off was intentional. So you can imagine after being scourged and all the your back's all ripped open and bleeding and all the muscle exposed and torn up, you put a robe on and the air is hitting that and it, the blood coagulates a little bit and all that stuff that happens and then you take that off. Right? That's intentional. That's all part of it. Okay? And put his own clothes back on him. Right? Just to create, I mean, just opens all that back up again. I'll reference something in a little bit you can read to get the full impact. If you want the real full impact of what he went through, I'll I'll give you something you can go look up. Okay? They led him out to crucify him. Verse 21, interesting. They, They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country. Simon or Simeon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And I love that they put that in parentheses, who he is, because it's important later on in church history. Okay? Very interesting. So they lead him out to crucify him. Four men would do this. One would walk in front of him and have a sign that would say, Jesus of Nazareth, 
king of the Jews. That sign was to declare what his crime was. So they're saying this is his crime as he's declaring to be king. Okay? Then there would be two more guys on each side and one following in the back. Okay? Now, crucifixion wasn't invented by the Romans. It was invented by the Persians, but the Romans perfected it. Okay, the Persians did it because they thought they were Mother Earth, nature worshipers. I want to say they were a bunch of tree huggers. I don't know how that worked, right? Okay, <clears throat> but they thought that the Earth was sacred, and so we, if we're going to kill somebody, murder them, we want to raise them up off the Earth so they're not touching the Earth when they die and when we kill them when we execute them and carry out their punishment. So that was why it was first invented. But the Romans, it kind of faded away, and the Romans redid the whole deal and was like, this is a great way to execute somebody. And so the Romans would have you carry the cross beam. If you remember the thing we did, and I brought out the cross that we showed you more of the capital T, not a lowercase t. Nothing wrong with lowercase t. That's what we have here. Right, that's the symbol we're all familiar with. But the cross beam would have been the just that single cross beam would have been what they were either strapped to or would have had to carry. It weighed about 75, 80, 90 pounds. They would have had to carry that beam out to where they would be crucified. Here in this city would be out to Golgotha. We'll talk about that in just a second. But they would just carry that the upright beam, the post, would have already been out there in the ground. We know this from history and from what's written about this area and how Rome and their history books and all this actually happened, we know where and how they did this. And that cross beam would have been already out there in the ground. They'd carry that cross beam, and that piece would be hoisted up with after they had nailed him in the, in the wrist through under that bone so it hooked. They would have hoisted him up on top of that cross beam, up on top of the upright, okay? And so... Um, they they took you through the streets and did their executions in public to warn people not to mess with Rome. That's why it was all done that way. Walk you out, gather as many people as possible along the way, and let people know this is what happens if you mess with Rome. Don't disobey us. Okay? The beating, if you survived the beating, because only about half, what, from what we know, about half the people... There were three levels of beatings you could get, one for misdemeanors, one for a little more heinous crimes, and then capital punishment. And the beating for that was way more serious. And if you actually survived the beating, um, then you would go out to the cross. Okay? It was This was all intentionally to delay. They were trying to take you as far as they could take you in your pain and suffering for as long as they could intentionally before you died. They wanted to inflict the most amount of suffering and pain that they knew a person could endure before dying. That's what they were doing at this time. And if you were a Roman citizen, couldn't be crucified, considered too horrible to actually do to a Roman. Now Simon, who carried the cross for Jesus at this point, this is actually significant, at least this to me, I think this is interesting, he was from North Africa, Cyrene, the Cyrenian, okay? In some records and translations, he's called Simon or Simeon the Black. We'll see that in just a moment in here because he was a black North African, okay? Uh, he was a Jew because there's all these Jews that have been scattered, that were scattered a part of the known world. 
A lot of them would come back pilgrimage to, to Jerusalem for the Passover. But he had no idea as he's come into town for the Passover, walking along the street, that he's going to be pulled out and made to carry the cross for a criminal that day, supposedly. But Rome made him participate. But it's cool that Mark tells you who he is, who he's the father of. In Romans sixteen thirteen, Paul lists some greetings to some very good friends, some people who are important to him and were important to the church, especially the early church. And in his greetings, he includes this in 1613 of Romans, greet Rufus, okay? There's one of the people that says uh, Simeon, Simon was a, the father of. Greet Rufus, listen, listen to this, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Dear friend of Paul, is the son of one who carried the cross for Jesus. wonder how he became a Christian, right? Acts 13.1 says, Now there were, at, they were at, there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. Listen to what it says. Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, or the black, right? And Lucius of Cyrene. There's another guy from the town where Simon's from, right? And... Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Okay? So, so here's an instance that I look at and go, what a divine appointment. What an incredible thing that God did for the life of Simeon. I mean, at the time, going, what a horrible thing to have to do to carry this cross for Jesus. But I think it's that very thing of walking with Jesus and carrying that part of the cross with Jesus was a, was a big reason for as a Jew probably being converted and believing as he watched what happened to Jesus. He's probably walked away when that guy really was the Messiah. And that kingdom shift happens where the throne, he comes off of it and Jesus became Lord of his life and and here he becomes so important to the early church. And you can see other people from from his hometown. So here's a guy in Jerusalem, gets converted with Jesus, walking with him, seeing him, and then goes back to North Africa. I mean, can, can you imagine? And that's, God's way smart, okay? He's got a good plan, okay? And and so God using this to send people back to all parts of the known world to spread the gospel, like Pentecost. It's a great example. There just happened to be all these Jews from all of the all these people from all over the known world converge on Jerusalem. Right? Pentecost happens. Peter preaches great sermon. Thousands of people get saved, and then dispersed back out to the known world to start Bible studies and churches and homes. Right. You'll read in there, you'll often read, Paul would go into a town on a missionary journey and he'd find believers down by a stream, some ladies, or he'd find, he'd find believers in certain towns. How? Pentecost, right? There's all these things that happen all the way into North Africa, all over the known world. And so God's pretty smart have, you know, to go back to these people and be dispersed all over the world to share the gospel. Verse 22, Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. I learned something cool about this that we'll share in a minute. It's just neat. And they 
crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take, which was what Romans did. Also part of prophecy. It was the third hour when they crucified him, 9 a.m. The inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. Now, Golgotha was the place of the skull because right behind where they crucified people was a rock face that looks like a skull in the stones. We have a picture of that. Okay. Now, this is a more current picture, so you can see the eyes and the nose. It was more of an opening at the bottom. Um, This has eroded. I mean, you're talking about a couple thousand years, right? Well, longer than that, not millions of years. Okay. But it has eroded, um, but that's what it looked like. Today, there's a bus station in front of it right here. But it was always a public road with just this flat area in front of it and a, pub, and a public road going by. They wanted to put that out there where everybody, the major crossroad of the city so everybody would see it. So it was always that kind of place. So it's appropriate today. It's a bus station. It's still a crossroads for people going everywhere, right? And so that's Golgotha. Now keep keep that picture up there because I want to I want to explain something about this because of what we have in our minds, okay? But that this is right behind where they would have cruci- they would have crucified him down here where those buses are, in front of that skull face as to to just be ominous, you know, death that kind of thing. Um, Golgotha, and you you go, well, what's Calvary then? Same thing, okay? It's all the same thing. Golgotha, the Hebrew word, is the Hebrew word for skull. Okay, And then you have the Greek word equivalent, cranion, which is where we get our word cranium, right? Okay, And then the Latin, calvarium, is where we get the word translated calvary. Okay, So it's just language stuff, okay? So it, all of it just means skull, place of the skull like place of the dinosaur on Mine Road, right? Some of you get that. That's good, okay? I didn't know if that would work or not, right? But it's same, it, it's, it's, I need to figure out what the Latin for that or the Hebrew for place of the dinosaur would be. Somebody help me with that. That would be really cool, okay? But this is where you may think I'm a heretic, okay, and get mad at me. I'm really not. This is just accurate history kind of stuff, okay? This is Bible not what our songs and our memes have taught us, okay? Right? The songs and movies have messed up this thinking a bit of what this looked like, okay? It wasn't on a nice hill with three crosses up there and the sun setting in the background. Those beautiful pictures we see on the internet, right? And we post and we go, I love Jesus and got the hill with the three crosses and it looks beautiful, right? is absolutely nothing like what it looked like, okay? I know the song says, and I love the song, okay? Right? On a hill far away. It wasn't on a hill. Sorry, okay? That, that's what history in the Bible teaches is that it was was it within, it wasn't on a hill far away. It was a walking distance of the city, right? Just outside the city gates. And it's where those buses are sitting. It's a flat area with the hill behind it. Okay? They couldn't crucify. I mean, look at that. 
you can't crucify anybody on top of that hill. You can't get a post. They couldn't have got a post. Well, I mean, they could do some amazing things, but they weren't going to put a post up there in that hill and walk up there, okay? It happened in front of, right there where those buses are, history, all the historical documents outside of even the Bible, and the Bible never says it was on a hill. It just it was at Golgotha, okay? So it was actually in front of that skull right there on the ground where those buses are, okay? And there was a public road going by, okay? So sorry, don't stone me or anything, okay? Romans didn't crucify on hills. And that hill behind it was solid rock, okay? And it says they gave him this mixed, they offered him this mixed drink, okay? I'm going to say it that way. The Talmud, which remember I said was part of the Mishnah, told you about. See, all this just gives us context to help us understand some of the things we read in Scripture, okay? Oral law, the Babylonian Talmud, has a part in it about gracious women who would prepare a narcotic drink to reduce the pain to be given to victims sentenced to death because of Proverbs 31.6, which says what? It says, give strong drink to him who is perishing. Okay? So in this document, from that time period, there were these women based on that that would have mixed this narcotic type drink to give to Jesus. I believe that pairs up, that there's context there. That's just personal belief. It doesn't tell us that's exactly what it is, right? But it says they brought him this drink. Who are they? I think it's these women who did that based on the, the Talmud and what it said in Proverbs 31 6, because that happened during that time, okay? Interesting, right? It's it's like going to surgery and saying, nah, I don't need that anesthesia. I just, I just don't need it, right? Go to the dentist. Nah, I don't need that shot. Thank you. Just pull the tooth, right? Jesus deciding one to be in his right mind, right? Scripture talks a lot about being sober spirit in our right mind. I believe he did that because he had committed already to, I am taking the full punishment and I'm not taking anything that's going to get, get that's going to divert from that. I'm not diverting from the plan. He's taking the full punishment, the full wrath of God, even physically, not just spiritually, emotionally, mentally, it was the cup that he had decided, I'm, you know, as he prayed, if there's any way this cup could pass for me, please, but if not, not my will, your will be done. This cup of God's wrath, I believe it was the cup that he decided to take. So when that was offered to him, it was like, no, I'm doing this for all of you, and I'm going to be in my right mind and doing what I'm supposed to be doing. If, and here's that reference if before going to come to a close, but if you really want to get the full description of what happened to Jesus, you can look this up, okay? It's the Journal of American of the American Medical Association, March 21st, 1986, okay? March 21st, 1986, Journal of the American Medical Association, and it's, and it's got an article in there that gives a full medical description of what a person would go through under Roman, under crucifixion, what Jesus would have went through. Very graphic, 
very, this is what happens to a person medically, okay? It's still the most considered the most thorough and most graphic explanation of what Jesus would have went through, okay? Taking all the wrath of God, all the punishment of God for the sin of all of us, of all mankind on him, it's why you can be forgiven and have a relationship with God. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Is that not beautiful? To think he would go through this to give us that? that he, that's what we trade. We trade our sin for his righteousness. I mean, that's called grace. That's called love. That's mercy. That is... And there again, that's what gets me about... I'm like... Sorry, it gets me fired up. Because there's so many people, I believe. That are lost, sitting in churches. Not for me to turn old school on you right here, but lost... Going to hell because a fear of hell can't save anybody. A fear of hell is not the theological, biblical reason or the thing that saves anybody. Fear of hell can't save you. Okay? It's the grace, love, and mercy of God. The Bible says, <laughs> by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone. That's it. It doesn't say, because of fear, because of fear of hell alone, okay? Fear of hell may be what makes you go, hmm, better think about this, okay? Maybe, okay? But until you come to that place where you go, look what Jesus did for me. Look at his sacrifice. He paid, for, he loves me. You're not going to place your life in the hands of someone you don't know loves you and has your, has, your best interest at heart to say, I want to use you to, to glorify me, to be a part of my kingdom forever, to know. The Bible says it's his repentance that, it's our, his kindness that leads us to repentance, right? That's what the Bible says, okay? And there again, I come back to that, and I'm, I'm sorry for the way I say it, because I know for some people, but listen, we've done a good job at scaring the hell out of people, a, bad, a poor job of going, this is what it means to be in love with Christ and to follow Him and know what He did for us. And out of that thankfulness for the Gospel, out of that thankfulness for what Jesus did for us, we just go, oh, absolutely, we love Him because He first loved us. Not because of a fear of hell, okay? And I've sat and had argument after argument, not like bad argument, okay? I'm talking discussion, sometimes heated, okay? With people would go, no, I'm scared of hell and that's why I got saved. You got saved because Jesus saved you. Hell didn't save you. Okay? So it's, so it's it's that thing of, that's why I think we got a lot of people who go, I got my ticket out of hell into heaven. I'm good. And and in that process, it's like I prayed a prayer. Jesus is in there somewhere. But it was like, going to heaven. I escaped hell. That's not Christianity. It's a benefit. Okay? Big benefit. But it's, it's, man, I'm in love with Jesus and I want to follow Him. I want to serve Him. 
He is on the throne of my life. I'm not anymore. I've turned from all that, and now I'm following Him. Okay, it's important. And that's why I think you look around. I looked around. There was a, you've heard me tell the stories. I mean, to sit in a church and a guy who is supposed to be a, a leader in the church, a deacon, and for somebody to go, hey, would you dismiss us in prayer? And go, and, him, and that guy just to go, no. Nudge his wife, make her stand up and do it. And my, it just, it just, it just, it just crushed me. I was like, and we look around our churches and, and it's like people who say they're Christians. Yeah, I prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, got saved. Okay, you, it's not based on what you did. Has it radically changed your life? That's how you know for sure you got it. Okay. I don't care how many times you prayed a prayer or if you prayed a prayer at all. So I'll tell you, my testimony is, I don't remember, I never had a moment where I really went, okay, I'm going to pray the sinner's prayer. I think it happened for me when I got up to join Barnard's Grove Baptist Church. I'm just telling you. Because I remember grabbing that pew back there going, why is it so hard just to walk up here and join this church? I'm a Christian, right? But I'm, I'm going to tell you, the moment I let go of that pew and I stood up to walk up there, what happened in my heart and in my mind was a, a, a king change, throne change. I stepped off, put him on. Because in that moment I was going, if I walk up there, I'm stating publicly, I believe everything that Bible says and Jesus is who he said he is and therefore this, I'm, he died for me so I'm going to live for him. In that moment, that change took place in my heart, and I can specifically go back to that moment and go, that's when it all started to change. Really. Okay? So it's not about praying a prayer, walking the aisle, getting baptized, all good things. We do that here. I've done that. Okay? But did it change you? And you're following Him, and you're serving Him, and I obey Him. He's on the throne. Man, I'm different than I used to be. I'm not perfect, right? Won't be until heaven. And even then, it's not my perfection. It's the righteousness of Christ that God will see, right? We cannot be in God's presence, His holy presence, in our state of sin. So Jesus took it for us so God would see the righteousness of Jesus when He looks at us. That's what that verse up there said so that we can be with Him, so that we can have that relationship. And that's what hell is, is just being apart from God. It's to say, no, God, I don't want you. So it's okay. Every good gift comes from God, right? Everything good comes from God. So to say no to God is to go, it's like, well, I have to put you in a place where nothing, none of my good stuff is. I have to create this place where my presence is really removed and you don't get to experience anything good. That's hell. That's just to say no to God. God doesn't send people to hell. People say no to God, and that's the only place they can go to be away from Him. That's how that works, okay? So are you thankful for salvation today? Do you need that forgiveness today? Do you find yourself going, you know what? I walked an aisle, prayed a prayer. Nothing ever really changed. Maybe you're realizing this for the first time today, then 
then do something about it. Eternity is at stake. Like, don't be like, I'm embarrassed a little bit, right? Get this, if anything you get right in your life, get this right, okay? And don't be afraid of it. Jesus loves you. He's put the church here to love you and encourage you and say, we want you to get this part right. And I'm, I actually get excited when I see people go, the change didn't happen, and I need to do that now, right? If you've never taken yourself off the throne of your life and surrendered that position to Jesus, please do that. So let's pray. As we pray right now, as we begin, of course, I just want to give you the opportunity. Like I said, it's not the prayer that does it, but if you want to express what's going on in your heart right now to God, if you're saying, I've never had that throne change in my life. And what that is, is you just taking a moment to talk to God and say, God, I've been Lord of my life. I've been on the throne. I've really just been enslaved to sin. I'm thinking I'm in charge of my life, but I'm, I'm... my flesh, Satan's deception. I'm just entrapped to my sin. And so, Father, I'm I, right now I'm surrendering the throne and I'm turning. That's that big word, repentance. I'm turning from, from me as Lord of my life. I'm turning from my sin. I don't want to live under that anymore. I want to obey and follow you, Jesus. I want you to be on the throne of my life. I, So I turn from that and turn to you. Thank you for saving me, dying on the cross in my place for my sin, that I could have this opportunity to know you and live the life that you made me for. For the rest of us, are are you really thankful? I mean, really? If Jesus is on the throne and has it, is it changing your life? Have you you seen the change? Is it obvious? Are you acting more like Jesus than you used to? Thank you, Father, for your son Jesus who died for us. May we just never forget. Would you, God, would you, through your Holy Spirit, if we're really yours, would you remind us every day what Jesus has done for us, the love that Jesus has for us, that he would do this amazing thing and take your wrath, Father, on himself, the wrath we deserved, and give us the opportunity to, to live these amazing lives lives that you created us for to do amazing things for your kingdom and for your glory how amazing is that may we not lose any time that we have left on this earth with things that do not matter father help us just to live for your son Jesus we want to live for him because he died for us and now lives through us May we really honor that. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.